Hello, Healthcare Experience Matters podcast listeners. I am your regular podcast host, Casey Callanan. We have a great episode coming up for you today, understanding and applying the principles of self-compassion with Brooke Billingsley. She's the Vice President of Service Excellence with the Healthcare Experience Foundation. And this is just a quick reminder that if you are interested in the Compassionate Leadership Certificate, virtual training for this will take place May 12th and May 13th, 2022. And there will be more information about this event in the description of this podcast episode. And you can also visit healthcareexperience.org front slash webinars for more information. The Certificate and Foundations of Compassionate Leadership Virtual Training. Now let's get to today's episode with Brooke Billingsley. This is about you and taking time for you. So I hope to share some good habits that you can start to create, some reflections that you can take, and just some aha moments for you as you start to um, build self-compassion, which is the structure that you need in order to be a compassionate leader. It has to begin with you. I have been in healthcare for about 25 years in the non-clinical space, but more in the human behavior and observation and patient perception. So I've been a part of being on units and sitting bedside with patients and understanding what they're experiencing, both emotionally and going through what their whole experience is interacting with clinicians and physicians. Um, compassion for yourself wasn't something that was ever discussed in my family, wasn't something that we would have ever embraced. It was a strong work ethic and really hiding your emotions. So self-compassion for me has been um, a learning curve as well in creating some positive habits that I need to be be mindful of. So I'm hoping that you'll get some ahas here. So here's what I hope to do. Self-compassion, we want to clearly define what it is for you as you apply it to you personally. We want to apply those principles of of once you've learned self-compassion, how do you incorporate them into your daily life and create positive habits? And why is self-compassion needed today? It's the foundation, right? You can't give what you don't have. So why do we put on our own oxygen mask first, right? If we don't give compassion to ourselves, we can't give it to others. Um, As leaders, we're so busy being compassionate towards others, our patients, families, um, that we run on empty often ourselves, right? So you've heard the phrase, you can't give what you don't have. It's unfortunate that sometimes when we do learn that we need self-compassion, it's at a critical point in our life when we've hit um, a major obstacle or a valley that we've um, encumbered with our own cancer diagnosis or a family member or what some went through in the past year and a half um, through this pandemic. Um, so how can you change something for yourself going forward? What will have the greatest impact on your life in uh, making a change in how you treat yourself and how you interact with yourself? So because we're all research-minded, we wanted to talk about uh, the risk of not being self-compassionate leads to compassion fatigue. Um, Again, you can't give what you don't have for yourself. And so this investigation to compassion fatigue and self-compassion in an acute medical care hospital, um, nurses had, it was a mixed method study, Journal of Compassionate Healthcare. And here were some of the comments that they said. Um, overwhelming with so many emotions flying around, I couldn't keep on top of them. I'm worried why I don't cry. 
show more emotion when a patient dies. It's almost they become numb. Am I becoming desensitized already? I'm getting frustrated with the workload and consequently not being able to give care to the high standard that they wished to deliver. I get critical and worried that I've missed something. I was lying there thinking, is it my fault? Could I have done any more? But I did all I could. So why wasn't that enough? And maybe some of those verbatims resonate with you. Um, Maybe at the end of a busy day, you get home and you go through all the things that you could have done better or all the mistakes that you made, or you reprimand yourself for the time that you should have spent doing this. And so what happens is you, you should on yourself so much of all the things you didn't do that you hadn't taken any time to, to thank yourself for the things that you were able to accomplish, um, for what you did get done that day, um, and how you, you were um, able, able to pivot uh, to meet whatever was happening on the unit or whatever was happening in your organization. Um, so often we come to work with variables we didn't plan on. And so we have to quickly pivot. And how do we do that when we think about self-compassion? Um, if you hadn't already gotten this, let's really have a deep understanding of our need for self-compassion. The amygdala acts as a switchboard for anxiety. It identifies threats and signals the rest of your body to prepare your body to protect itself. So you know the fight or flight, right? So there's the trigger, your physical response. So once we identify something in our environment as a threat, it signals the brain to protect it. It activates hormones, body organs, muscles that govern the fight or flight. And then the heart beats faster to jump and pump blood to our legs and arms. We begin to breathe quickly. If you've ever had high anxiety where you're not talking, um, you're in, in between breaths talking uh, it, because it increases oxygen delivered to our tissues. We sweat to cool off our body. Our digestive tract uh, reacts to eliminate any excess waste or urine to make us lighter on our feet. Uh, amazing how our body just comes to the forefront in response to that threat. So now we're prepared to flee a predator, but we're in no but we are in no better positive position to solve the challenges we confront at work, right? Or in our personal lives, Um, especially if we have been inundated with 24-hour news um, that we've just come out of and are still in somewhat uh, 24 hours of doom and gloom news cycle. So while we may not experience this full-blown trigger that the brain puts us in, we might have uh, what the amygdala produces is a more chronic um, reaction. It happens when your body secretes low levels of the hormone cortisol. It makes you feel physically and emotionally tense and anxious. So think about when you're watching a scary movie after the haunted music starts and before the villain appears. You're on the edge of your seat and the smallest snafu in your life can trigger that imposing startle response. So since chronic anxiety and feeling on edge is com- uncomfortable, we want to appeal to another neurological system to make us feel better. And what is that? The neurotransmitter dopamine. So this system evolved in humans to feel positive sensations associated with sex, food, and water. And it can be activated by several other modern behaviors, addictive substances, risky activities, gambling, even social media, right? How many likes do we get? Um, Instagram, um, match. I had a friend in her, she had just turned 60, was newly divorced, not by her choice. 
and had a, a whistle signal that went off on her cell phone when she was with me for the weekend. And I kept saying, what is that noise? She goes, oh, that's when I'm getting um, a like on match. And so that was giving her, um, it was a dopamine high from being liked by others, right? And so it's a pleasurable, ecstatic state. The problem is that when the dopamine gives us pleasure, the effect is very fleeting. And when it disappears, we might be feeling the same or even worse um, after that dopamine release. So in a stressed out world, we look to neuroscience to understand what a modern day trigger to dis dismantle a rational mind. So I want you to consider this, the third system, tend and befriend. So it's modulated by that neurotransmitter oxytocin. When activated, produces feelings of comfort and stability. It's associated with improvements in mood and well-being, and the system is correlated with compassion. So self-compassion is associated with lower rates of depression, self-criticism, physical ailments, and an improved immune system functioning. When we are experiencing self-compassion, we ask ourselves, what do we need to feel better and how can we soften the negative emotions? We learn to give ourselves a sense of comfort and nurturing. So how do we do that? First thing we do is we show self-kindness, right? So self-compassion doesn't try to capture and define the worth or essence of who we are. It's a way of relating to the mystery of who you are. And so your, our success and failures come, they don't define us. And they don't determine our worthiness. They're just a part of being alive. We are all human beings. Our minds try to convince us otherwise, right? We live in a world where the mind tells you, you screwed up, you made a mistake, you know, what's wrong with you? And some of the things that we say to ourselves is the opposite of self-compassion. But our heart knows that our true value lies in the core of experience, the, in the experience of being a conscious being who feels and perceives and, and that is who we are throughout our whole life. If you're striving for perfection, I'm here to tell you that you'll never obtain it um, and you'll only beat yourself up trying to get there. And so self-compassion is learning to accept yourself as you are. Doesn't mean that we're not always learning and, um, and exploring and enhancing our lives, but it is accepting us as we are. So let's talk about some myths of self-compassion. Maybe you grew up this way. Maybe this was a part of your culture in your family, right? Self-compassion is selfish. For many people, especially women, our concept of self is closely tied to taking responsibility for everybody else's physical and emotional needs. We've been taught that we're supposed to be caretakers at all costs. We may feel that being self-compassionate is the same as being selfish. Well, according to Dr. Neff, a growing body of research suggests that self-compassion and taking good care of yourself self helps you sustain your capacity for generosity and service to others without being burnt out or angry or resentful. The second myth is self-compassion is narcissistic. Um, that comes from the confusion of the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. Many of us have heard the importance as growing up, if you grew up in college with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The importance of youth and adults developing good self-esteem. While there's a general consensus that self-esteem is positive, research shows that the focus on helping people feel good about themselves sometimes comes at a high cost. For example, the emphasis on developing self-esteem is linked to self-criticism. 
self-judging, self-evaluating, perfectionism, and then comparison of ourselves to others. So for some, having high self-esteem means feeling superior, above average, and better than those. Um, And it also has been linked to bullying behaviors, such as putting others down as a way to try to feel better about ourselves. Uh, Sociologist Charles Horton Cooley identified another common source of self-esteem. He said, feelings of self-worth determined by the perception of others that others have of us. He said, we give more weight to nameless, faceless people and what they think of us. That's an interesting point. So number three, self-compassion makes me complacent. You know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. We have songs about that. We pride ourselves in pushing through and being tough. So many believe that judgment and harsh harsh criticism for ourselves and others is the best way to motivate. And that self-compassion will just make us lazy, unmotivated, and indifferent. Um, Research actually shows that fear-based self-criticism leads to a fear of failure, a lack of confidence, and ultimately depression. While self-criticism kills motivation, self-compassion motivates us to be proactive, take risks, achieve emotional well-being and contentment in our lives. So if you have that and grew up that way, um, knowing that if you did, you weren't tough on yourself and you didn't have that tough love that you were somehow going to be considered weak. Just note that that self-compassion motivates you to be a better person, to be proactive and to achieve emotional well-being and contentment. The fourth myth is that it makes you weak, right? Tough love. So we come face to face with our mistakes, our faults, our failings. Um, we think about coaching even in the old days. I, I'm here in I, at IU land where, you know, we grew up with um, basketball as is a passion in Indiana. And so you think about coach Bobby Knight and how he used to coach he threw a chair at somebody across the across the um, I wanted to say the, a rink, but it's not a rink <laughs> across the arena. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You can tell it's been a while since I've been to a basketball game. Um, but that was the way we thought of being tough, that it meant being vulnerable and that you were you didn't want to show any weakness, but it's the opposite. So it's very common for our shame to get triggered, which makes us feel exposed to exposed and vulnerable. So when we're unaware that our, our shame has been triggered, we may try to protect ourselves from painful feelings by shutting down or acting tough or acting aggressive towards others. Far from being a weakness, researchers are finding self-compassion is one of the most important aspects of coping, resilience, and mental health as we move through this inevitable complexity and messiness of life. And life is messy. It just is. For those of us who've been around longer we know there are, are hills and valleys and that we're all going to experience different parts. So the other, the fifth uh, myth is that compassion, self-pity, right? Why are you going to feel sorry for yourself? I mean, maybe some of us heard that as a child. It's a common misconception of self-compassion and research shows just the opposite. People who get stuck in, isn't it awful thinking? That's self-pity. Feeling, for your, feeling sorry for yourself is actually less likely to be self-compassionate. But people who are more self-compassion are better able to take life's difficulties as they come, and they can move through them more easily with some grace and keep things in perspective. So those are the five myths, and maybe you grew up with a few of them. Uh, Maybe you grew up with all five of them, but it's just important to know 
the differentiator between self-compassion and some of those myths that we grew up with. So how do you apply these now to your life, right? So you you know what self-compassion is, you know it's important, you know what it's not. What can you start doing as an individual as for you personally before you become a compassionate leader and start to, to um, influence compassion in your organization? The first thing is be kind to yourself, okay? Sounds airy-fairy, but here's the thing. We want you to, to pause and to s- step back to say to yourself, what am I observing? What am I feeling? What am I needing right now? And do, they, do I have a request of myself or someone else? So those four questions allow you to listen deeply to what you need in the moment. It takes several weeks for this to become a habit. And it may feel strange to you at first. Um, If you like journaling, this is an excellent way to do this um, every day when you're showing kindness to yourself to journal what it feels like, how you answered those questions. Um, But your first step in this, in being kind to yourself is to be aware when you are being self-critical. And secondly, you need to make an active effort to soften the self-critical voice and do it with compassion. And then thirdly, you want to reframe the observations made by your inner inner critic in that kind, friendly, positive way. So let's think of the last time you were at work or you were harsh with yourself, right? Um, A lot of us multitask, a lot of us are maybe sleep deficient. And so we we have maybe a short fuse and we forget something. Um, For those of us who walk out of a room into another room and can't remember why we're in that room because we're trying to get several things done at one time, we may say things to ourselves. um, Oh my gosh, you're so forgetful or you're so stupid. You, why did you do that again? You know, what's the matter with you? You know, better than that. I can't believe you said that those are criticizing ourselves. Those are, that's, that's that self-criticizing criticism that comes out of our internal language with ourselves and our internal dialogue with ourselves. We wouldn't say that to a loved one and we wouldn't say it to our best friend. If we did, they might not hang around with us much because it would like, who wants to be around that, right? But we yet, we give ourselves permission to talk to ourselves that way. So you remember the the movie, The Help, when Viola Viola Davis, who played Abilene, was the nanny? And she had that little girl who was constantly berated by her mom. And what did she say? You is kind, Mm. you is smart, and you is important. And she was starting that self-dialogue with that little girl to say to herself that she was a good person, that she was, that at the core of who she was. So what do you need to say to yourself to be kind to yourself? What do you need to be aware of when you're criticizing yourself or you're hard on yourself when you've accomplished six out of the 60 things on your list today? And and most people couldn't have gotten through two. You know, what could you do? So this is the step one, just to be mindful to stop and ask these four questions. If you like to journal, I encourage you to journal about it. Um, It's good to start being reflective so that you start to understand to get to the core of why you're feeling the way you are and just to, 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 to try to reframe and shift the way that you've always thought. It's going to take time. It takes time to develop habits. So knowing that is a great place to start. The second part is recognize that we um, are common humanity, that we are human, right? 
We all face difficulties, awareness that we're connected. Um, we talk about when we talk about the meaning of compassion to suffer with, it implies a, a basic mutual experience in suffering. The emotion, we're not, none of us are going to escape suffering. It may be at different levels or capacities, but none of us will go through life ex- with es- escaping any kind of suffering. So the emotion of compassion springs from the recognition that the human experience is imperfect. That's hard for some of us who have grown up with that's not good enough and a perfectionistic tendency. So just knowing that we are not perfect. Remember the saying, you're only human. Well, that brings comfort to us and it brings comfort to others when there's been a mistake. So what distinguishes self-pity from self-compassion? Remember, self-pity is poor me. Self-compassion remembers that everyone suffers and offers comfort because everyone is human. The pain I feel in difficult time um, is the same pain that you're going to feel in a difficult time. The triggers may be different. The degree of pain may be different, but the process is the same. So the befriend part of the tend and befriend that we talked about, that instinct has to do with the human tendency to affiliate, to come together in groups to feel secure. So if you remind yourself in the moment of falling down that failure is part of the shared experience, then that moment becomes one of togetherness rather than isolation. So you can tell I watch a lot of movies. So do you remember Hilary Swank in the movie Freedom Writers? She goes into an inner city school and she's having a hard time relating. And none of the kids are really um, finding their commonality with each other. And there's a lot of disagreement. So she decides to put a line down the middle of the room. And she starts to ask them to step over the line if they've experienced a traumatic event in their life or a failure in their life. And each time she shares something, one or two step over the line until she's reached the end of her list and everyone's over the line. At that moment, they have a shared experience. They have found their common humanity. And the third thing, well, mindfulness as part of emotional intelligence, and it refers to clearly seeing and being non-judgmental in the acceptance of what's occurring in the present moment. It's just saying what it is, right? We need to see things as they are. No more, no less. Um, we give ourselves compassion and we need to first know that we are suffering. So in our dealings with coaching with leaders across the country, I'm reminded of having dinner with a CEO of two hospitals. And we were talking because we were doing some work with the hospitals on improving um, emotional intelligence and patient experience. And he shared with me that he had just had prostate cancer and he'd had a new robotic procedure um, at a hospital in LA. And he was sharing the stress of the experience that he had had and that the doctor had asked him to give himself at least four weeks before going back to work. And he decided that he wasn't worthy of four weeks off, um, that that was perceived as weak. And so he pushed himself and went back to, week, back, back to work full time after 10 days. And as he's talking to me, I can see the emotion um, in his face and I can hear it in his voice. And I said to him, I said, isn't it interesting that you would have advised a friend or a family member to take that full four weeks, but you couldn't allow yourself to take that full four weeks? And he said, I know. He goes, I saw it as a weakness. So when you think about mindfulness, 
It's just, it gives you breathing room to respond in a way that helps you and reminds you that you're human and that it's okay. It's not a weakness to take care of yourself. Being mindful then helps you understand what your strengths and weaknesses are. If you would just please write down 10 qualities that you appreciate about yourself, they may be qualities you display all the time or just some of the time. So the point of this exercise is that when you look at this list, just to look at it and enjoy those positive aspects of who you are and to take it in as a strength. Um, And just to understand that if you are a journaler, to put those things down, maybe if you had a tough day, you know, what did you appreciate about yourself? What's a strength that you appreciated that you were able to show up and be be with yourself? Um, Just as you exhibit those acts of kindness, writing those down and journaling, I think will help you reinforce some really good habits of self-compassion. So what happens is the outcome of self-compassion Um, When you are trained in it, you're less likely to experience compassion fatigue because you have skills that are needed to avoid getting overly stressed or burned out when interacting with patients. And I would add with with your um, coworkers and, and employees as well. It also suggests that you'll feel energized, happy, grateful, able to make a difference in the world. Caregivers who have self compassion are more likely to engage in concrete acts of self-care, such as being willing to take time off, sleeping more, eating well. Um, They'll stop to care for their own emotional needs. They'll understand when their batteries need to be recharged. They'll know when they're depleted. Um, Rather than becoming drained by others, they allows them to fill up their internal reserves. So they understand like the oxygen mask um, that they're they're gonna give themselves some time Um, And it it may even just be giving yourself permission to go, for me, it's walking in the woods. Um, I have a great state park near me and just spending an hour, hour and a half in the woods um, gives me that self-love and that compassion. So um, self-compassion is actually considered an altruistic act because it puts us in the optimal mental and emotional mindset to help others in a sustainable, long-lasting way. So keep that in mind. Self-compassion is an altruistic act. It puts us in an optimal mental and emotional mindset so we can help others in a sustainable and meaningful way. So here's some key points. Self-compassion is needed more than needed more now than ever in a world that's filled with anxiety and depression. And what can we do about that? We can practice pausing and asking those four questions. What am I observing? What am I feeling? What am I needing right now? Uh, Do I have a request of myself for someone else? It's practicing uh, self-compassion. Every aspect of your life gives you the ability to be a compassionate person. You can't give what you don't have. Um, It's really difficult when you're burnt out to turn around and be compassionate with someone else. It's changing your critical self-talk It's the most important way to be kind to yourself. And I have some key phrases that you can say, today is really hard for me. And it's okay to just stop and say, today is really hard for me. Or it's understandable. I'm tired and I can move a bit slower today and that's okay. Giving yourself permission. I'm upset and disappointed I didn't get that all done. But what I need right now is just rest. We hear people say that to us, but we need to be able to say it to ourselves. I'm struggling today like so many people and like so many people, I deserve kindness too. I'm doing the best I can under these difficult circumstances. I'm feeling sad right now, 
I need to take a quick break and journal about it. Or I forgive myself for, and you can name that. Or you can say I made a mistake and I can make it right. What I like to say is I'm learning every day. And when I make a mistake, I'll say, okay, that was a learning moment. I'm learning every day. I'm human and humans aren't perfect. So whatever that changing that self-talk is for you, find some key phrases that you can say to yourself. Um, because you know that we verbalize things and then our mind believes it. And so we need to verbally say those self-compassionate uh, comments back to ourselves and self-talk. And our mind starts to believe what we're saying to ourselves. So how can you take action? Be intentional by assessing all the good things you admire about yourself. Soak in those positive aspects of you as a person. Um, begin to practice that self-compassion every day. Got to be mindful. You got to pause and stop. Why am I thinking this way? What's going on? You know, check in with yourself. Use those four questions. Journaling is helpful if you can do journaling. If it's not, it doesn't help you, then it may just be meditation. It may be a quiet time with yourself. Um, it may decompressing after you come home from work to think about instead of what you didn't do, all the good things you did. Today, I was, I was intentional and I did this. Or today, I was able to pour into these people's lives. Or today, and, and just make note of the things that you could do. Pay attention to how your self-compassion uh, impacts those around you. Do you have more energy? Do you find that you have more patience or more joy? Um, and recognize we get this one life. And there is no one like you. You are uniquely made. So practice telling yourself that you are enough and that your imprint, imprint on this world matters because it begins with self-compassion. We all have stories of rough roads that we have walked down and we have to just pause sometimes to say, I matter. I make a difference every day. I'm going to invest in me. I'm going to be kinder to myself um, so that I in turn can be kinder to others. And then find within um, what's working in your life or not working in your life, things that you can begin to incorporate to really enhance your own self-compassion. Uh, keep in mind that there's science behind creating habits. They used to say 21 days and you had a habit. If that was true, then I would always have losing 20 pounds on my, on my goals every year. Um, but it takes 18 to 265 days to actually create a habit. So know that this you're going to have to put this into practice and be intentional about putting into practice um, how you stay on track, what tools and resources do you need, and what barriers will you encounter? You know, you may encounter that you have to restart, that you have to, you might catch yourself slipping back into what you know is your normal pattern and stop yourself and say, oh, I need to be kinder to myself. I need to change my self-talk. Um, I need to do some things for me. I'm feeling depleted. And so always know that you have the option to restart each time. So loving yourself does not mean being self-absorbed or narcissistic or disregarding others. Rather, it means welcoming yourself as the most honored guest in your own heart, a guest worthy of respect, a lovable companion, Margot Annan. So I hope that you got something out of this session. Um, be intentional about your journaling um, and really begin that work because the foundation of you loving you is where all of your compassionate leadership is going to come from. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.
www.thepeopleshow.org.